0: Hello, all, and welcome to another week of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics here with Everald Compton. As always, how are we?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I'm still waking up every morning, James, so oh, that's a plus. And so, uh, and I'm a bit fired up this morning on a few issues, but being a democratic person, I'll let you head off first.
0: All right. Um, one thing we um, forgot to talk about last week, by the way, that uh, just popped into my mind a, a friend of mine, a listener of the show, Told me about this was the Harbour Bridge turning ninety, um, just a couple of months younger than you is our Harbour Bridge. So
1: um, happy birthday to the you turn ninety.
0: The, the Harbour Bridge turned ninety. Oh,
1: Harbour Bridge,
0: yes. we, yeah. we forgot to talk about it last week, so I just thought I'd shout I think, out.
1: I think the Harbour Bridge has got greater longevity prospects than I have. Uh, oh,
0: don't be so think, sure.
1: Even as a little boy, years later i read the story about how that fellow, uh, DeGroote, I think his name was, uh, mucked up the opening by charging in and cutting the ribbon with his sword. That was big news for years and years and years. You well, know, I'm pleased to share birthday with the Harbour Bridge.
0: <laughs> uh, happy birthday to the Harbour Bridge. On to our major stories this week. Um, the big story that jumped out to me, one of the big stories that jumped out to me, was Morrison finally allowing. Uh, 450 refugees to be resettled in New Zealand. Uh, This was a deal John Key, the former National New Zealand Prime Minister, proposed way back in 2013 um, to resettle refugees that were keeping in immigration detention um, in New Zealand. And nine years of illegal incarceration of these people later, we finally let them out in the lead up to an election. Um, The federal government, That the Novak Djokovic saga obviously cast a lot of light on the treatment of these refugees that have been in in detention for nine years straight. The government took on a lot of criticism for it, and rightful criticism, because it's not only against international law, it's just against basic human decency to keep your fellow man locked up in conditions like that for nine years. Very unchristian. It's not something I suggest um, either of us would think Jesus of Nazareth would uh, would, uh, promote. Um, And yet, you know, we have our Prime Minister who holds himself out as the biggest Christian in the world, locking up these people for nine years. And only finally, by his serene grace, letting them out a month out from an election. Uh, What do you think?
1: (laughs) First of all, I I am filled with disgust with it all. Absolutely filled with it. And not at the refugee going, I want to go. I'm filled with disgust. It's the way they have now. Very significant number of things. It was John Key a Conservative Prime Minister of New Zealand who served three terms, very popular Conservative Prime Minister. He proposed it to Julia Gillard and Julia Gillard accepted it and signed off on it. Then when Abbott got in, bang, it, it, a few months later, bang, it, it was gone. And so it's very interesting that a Conservative Prime Minister of New Zealand came to this deal with the Labour Party Prime Minister of Australia. So, so now, also interesting that when... Jacinda Ardern got in for the Labour Party in New Zealand. She endorsed what her uh, conservative predecessor had done. And so I've been sitting there on the table. And as you say, the evil way in which the refugees have been treated really wants you to throw your breakfast up in it is, it is just terrible. terrible. now, in order to win the election, he does it now. It's true that the Dokovic thing might have highlighted this business in the public mind and therefore Morrison decided it is, but I think he's desperate. It it shows that he's desperate for for re-election. Now, as I understand it, it's not limited to 450, times; It's 150 a year initially for three years, but hopefully to continue at 150 annually, because there's a couple of thousand travelling around somewhere. And and so at least it's, uh, and, and I'm sure that if Albanese wins the election, he'll, he'll continue uh, the process. But uh, it really shows how cynical Australia has been. But not more than cynical. I mean, it goes back to dreadful things like the Tampa, you know, when we turned all those uh, refugees away who were legitimately picked up in a tragedy of the sea. One hopes this might end a, a saga that's uh, been going on for far, for far too long, and that we'll end up having a, a better, you know, progressive um, policy and not have this business that if you come by a boat, you're not acceptable. If you come some other way, you are acceptable. When at the time that refugees arrived, they had no other way of getting here other than by boat. And might, might I say that my great, my ancestor, my great great grandfather, who came out here as a convict. Can buy a boat. I just
0: want to make that. Uh, just want to make that point out. Yeah? yeah, and I mean, um, yeah, M- Morrison or the Liberal Party's board justification for tearing this deal up. Well, not tearing the deal up, but leaving it on ice for nine months, uh, nine years. geez, was allegedly that if we allow, if we resettle these refugees in New Zealand, it will fire up the people smuggling trade again. We can't have that. Um, I I put to the Liberal Party, and I put to anyone. Uh, you know, who with, with a decent soul that these refugees who come by boat, um, you, you, what situation do you have to be in to want to go on to a potentially leaky, overfilled, overcrowded boat with someone you've never met before who, you know, with no legal duty of care, no contract, no enforceable promises, who's just saying, yeah, I can take you on this crappy little dinghy from this port in Indonesia, this port in Sri Lanka, this port in Cambodia, all the way to Australia. Like what, how desperate do you have to be to get in this situation? And then here is our government. And governments of both stripes have been terrible to so-called boat people over the years. But you have to be in the most desperate and dire of straits to even consider that as an option for seeking refuge. There has to be pretty much no other choice before you get on one of those boats. And Uh yet our governments have treated them as subhuman as a second class of people, not like a a third, fourth, fifth class of people, just they've treated them like dirt. And it's so sickening. And I saw a great quote, um, a great post somewhere on Twitter this week, and they talked about how the the lack of rights that these refugees have indicates to you how the government would treat us if they thought they could get away with it. Um, And I think that says a lot.
1: Well, it does. And look, this is, can I just add, before we move on, I mean, I, uh, I don't think this is going to do gain Morrison. One single lady, you probably lose a few for the sheer stupidity. But well, let me tell you, I had lunch with a fellow on Friday and I met for the first, I mean, amongst other people, and he was in charge of the, the border, the, the Air Force part of the Border Force up there looking for in Darwin for years. He'd been back a few years. And he reckoned the Border Force were bored out of their brains, flying around trying to find boats that were not coming because we'd scared them off. And he said that whenever they found a boat coming towards Australia, which is about once a year, the excitement in the ranks of the Border Force was enormous. Their boredom had been broken. They actually finally found a boat and they'd come back to the pub and get sloshed. We actually found a boat. And so they... The whole border force things, mean in Jack as well. Have oh, you know, one of those things. Well, let's move on to brighter things, James. what have you got to talk about? Uh, you know, to me next, the Solomon Islands and china have got to be a bit of a thing. And
0: mm. well, so China, well, China and the Solomon Islands, uh, Solomon Islands being a nation in Melanesia in the Pacific Islands, uh, announced they were strengthening their defence and trade ties um, this week. And I mean, to me, the big story here is not um, China strengthens defence ties with Solomon Islands. The big story is Australian government negligent in supporting Pacific neighbours for past 20 years. So Pacific neighbours are forced to turn elsewhere. Um, I mean, one of the most galling things I've ever seen was at some summit. Um, Tony Abbott, Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison all having a laugh that. Pacific Island nations won't be here in 50 years' time with the rising sea levels. That was mm-hmm. funny to them. They had a bit of a joke about it. Um, and our foreign policy in the past 20 years has been reflective of that. We've offered no support to Pacific Island nations. We've left them behind. We are the economic superpower in our region. And we have so many less um, advanced economies in our region who could do with so much human aid, so much international aid, so much support from us. And we've done nothing for them. And so, of course, they're going to turn elsewhere. Of course, the Solomon Islands are going to look to China, who's promising them money and economic involvement and defence pacts and these sorts of things. Um, Because, simply put, we're we're no ally to the people of the Solomon Islands anymore because we ignore them.
1: Well, look, look, it's cynical, well I keep using the word cynical, I must find a better word in the, uh, <laughs> you know, in the language, but I've been, as you know, I'm an old bloke and I've been visiting the Pacific Islands now for sixty years, sometimes on business in my earlier days, but most often on holidays with Helen and I, we've been to every one of the Pacific Island nations except Kiribati, uh, you know, was a bit hard to find, but anyway, yeah. Uh, uh, and not the sort of place you want to go to with the waves lapping up at your hotel door. But, but uh, uh, the, the, it has been obvious over all those years that Australia has been neglected and that other nations have been coming in and doing things. And the presence of China just grew and grew and grew. Now, a couple of years ago, just before COVID hit, stop and stopped the travelling, Helen and I were in Tonga. Lovely people in Tonga, very peaceful people, and not an ounce of belligerence in them very, very fundamentalist Christian nation, they have signed a big deal with the Chinese. And you you, you go around the the Tonga and you find uh, that this road was built by the government of China and the Chinese embassy downtown in the capital of Nucalapa is the biggest building in town and (laughs) it's a good-looking building. And we got invited uh, by the Chinese ambassador. Somehow or other we got invited and We went along to reception, he held with them. They threw some dancers all the way out from Shanghai to perform around the islands, and so we got invited uh, along, and I drank Chinese uh, alcohol, which I don't, uh, you know, recommend. They're they're no threat to the Scotch whiskey trade, I can tell you. Uh, And and we had a lovely evening, surrounded by Chinese officials, Chinese army ropes, Chinese everything, the Tongans there, clapping and cheering. Now we were the only Aussies there. I was representing the nation in the whole thing because Morrison didn't even know what was going on. And, and this is how stupid. The whole, and you go to Samoa, you find there's some everywhere. There's a Chinese, and if you don't find a Chinese friend, you find a Japanese one. And you go over to, to um, uh, Vanuatu, and the biggest plantation in Vanuatu was owned by the Japanese. Where's the Australian investment? It's not there. So the whole thing is, 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 is
0: don't be stuff with yeah. You're entirely right. And it's not just a case of we're ignoring them in terms of investment and economic needs. We're actively contributing with our really terrible attitude on climate change towards the rising sea levels, towards the climate threats that they face. So it's not just like we're ignoring them. We're actively creating problems for our Pacific neighbours. And it, it's disgusting. Like, look, all, all power to, the good people of the Solomon Islands for accepting this economic benefit from China because we're not giving anything to them. Um, you know, I hope this is a very prosperous deal for the people of the Solomon Islands because we're leaving them in the lurch. And to be honest, I know it's people will say, you know, it's worrying that China will have more seaports in the Pacific, blah, blah, blah. But to me, motivation, potential motivations for it aside, I'm very happy to see a country stepping up and filling the void where we haven't. Because the people of the Pacific Islands are people too, just like you and me, um, and you know, when we leave a hole in the support for these people, someone does need to step up.
1: That's so. true. And the Solomon Island, not that Morrison would know, is very strategically placed at the end of Papua New Guinea there, and 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 close to Australia, and a, a launching off pad for that. I've been there several times. I. Right? I carried out a professional assignment there for uh, uh, the government there years ago. And and, and I've got to, you know, there is enormous poverty around the place. And if the Chinese, by being there, start building things and doing things and build up the local, why the hell wouldn't you do it? Do I wish the Solomon Islands well in that, Britain and China? And, and I don't think that China's going to put any rockets there to go far you us. They just want to have a presence, a fairly dominant presence, in yep. the you can just tell us, to exactly. to tell us about you know, and, uh, where it is. And, uh, you know, that really goes on. Now, look, James, uh, the, the, uh, uh, just moving on, you know, from how we've mucked that up, Parramatta and uh, the, the ALP in Parramatta is <laughs> it's reportedly uh, tried to get uh, one of Kevin Rudd's um, staffers. Um, uh, Endorses the ALP, high-profile ALP candidate. and He happens to be, you know, a very competent bloke. He does happen to be that. But you've got a local ALP that's been fostering candidates, and they've got three good candidates, and who, who would represent the ethnic elements of the Parramatta society. And they be, they look as if they're going to be wiped out. To, you know, to bring a high-profile candidate in, and this is the second time. That this had been allowed because they parachuted Christine Keneally into the Fowler, I think, was the seat. Mm-hmm. And there was a very eminent female ethnic lawyer there who would have won that seat by the length of the straight, and she got wiped out so Keneally could get in there. And forgetting about the... I was disgusted with that, but not just with the Labour Party. Let me tell you that all my life political parties have been parachuting these glamour candidates in... Uh, uh, you know, the seats I remember when Sir Garfield uh, uh, Barwick before he got on as Chief Justice, when he he was an Emily, he wanted a seat in Parliament as a stepping stone, either to be Prime Minister or Chief Justice, and they parachuted him to us into a seat and wiped out a couple of very good Liberal Party candidates in doing it. So, so I mean the Liberals can't go saying, Well, the Labour Party is up to no good, but you and I can say it's up to no good because there's got to be democracy in political parties and there is not. And I I would like an addition to the Australian constitution to say that if you are a registered political party, there must be a plebiscite held of your party to endorse a candidate. The party just can't do it. And that election of members must be supervised by the Australian Electoral Commission, otherwise you'll go to jail. And I think that that way, We'll get somewhere.
0: What do you think? Well, um, yeah, it, it was disgusting when Labor did this with Keneally to knock over prominent local migration lawyer Tooley, and it it annoys me so much that they're doing it again. Like you say, it's not solely a Labor Party issue. I remember at the last election the Liberals tried to parachute Warren Mundine into the seat of Gilmore. Didn't work out for them. He ended up losing because sometimes local people don't like imposing an out-of-towner, um, a big, high, flashy name out-of-towner, into their local seat. After all, the whole point of the seat system is that the person not only advocates for their party, but they advocate for the people of the seat that which they represent. And what Labor's trying to do here is parachute someone who owns a $16 million mansion in Bellevue Hill from his career in consulting into the local seat of Parramatta. Um, I saw an article this week. It was like an opinion piece. And it was saying how good this Andrew Charlton fellow is. And it was saying things like, well, of, of course, the people of Parramatta should want to elect Andrew Child. He's handsome, he's presentable, he's charismatic. As if local candidates also, like um, local culturally and linguistically diverse candidates also can't be those things. Like, it, it's not just like the mighty whitey from Bellevue Hill is the only person who can be charismatic, who can be competent, who can be presentable, who can be appealing. Um and it's sort of reflective of a broader trend in society of seeing, like, the tall, um, prominently chinned white man as the safe pick or the competent pick. Um, and it sort of speaks, this specific one and the Keneally one, they both speak to, a like, a greater sort of force in society of people's, like, the, the people in power's reluctance to accept the competence of culturally and linguistically diverse people. The Sydney Morning Herald read a great article uh two weeks ago about how in job hiring um equally qualified candidates of diverse backgrounds are seen as riskier um than equally qualified candidates of white backgrounds just because they're of a diverse background um and so that's those are the sorts of forces we're seeing play out here and when it comes to politics like you say it is incredibly anti-democratic like 10% of our population is Chinese-Australian and nowhere near 10% of our parliament is Chinese-Australian. We have like 700,000 Indian-Australians in this country and that's probably like, you know, 0.7% of our population. Um, sorry, 7% of our population or so. And yet we've got nowhere near 7%, um, oh, it's probably closer to 4%, but nowhere near 4% of the parliament is Indian-Australian. Um, I don't even know if we have any Indian-Australians in our federal parliament.
1: Well, that, that, that's, a good, uh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, must, uh, uh, I must look around on that. But it, it comes to the fact that voters in Australia are sick of the political establishment. They're sick of the fact that parties represent the grab for power. They don't represent us as voters, they don't represent the practice of democracy as power. You've got to get your break, get your power and whole power by whatever means. You'll find an enormous backlash this election against the political establishment. What this Andrew Chapman thing does and anything does, it further tells the voters that there is something wrong with it. And that's why independents are going to be good. Not that the public love independence, but they're saying, well, we're sick of parties. Let's give the independents a go. It's only one election anyway. It's no good. We'll toss them out next time, but it will be good, I might add. But I think the backlash is about to happen, and this thing at Parramatta and at Fowler with chameleon to fuels the backlash and, you know and, and, and that's, that's, uh, that's how it's going to be and James we should uh, you know, in like the get the good and bad uh, you know people um, you know people of the week, and I think you and I might have a little bit of time, we need a bit more time for this one. You and I probably both can nominate Ash Barty as a hero. Well, that's I thing of a heroine now. It's only hero, the hero, of the, you know, of the, uh, you know, of the week. And and uh, I, uh, it did not surprise me when she retired. Uh, I thought that having won the Australian Open tennis, the first Australian woman to do that for Yonks, Uh, and and having won Wimbledon, which is the crowning glory of all tennis players, and and being number one for 250 weeks or uh, something. She'd achieved what she wanted to achieve. And the thought of getting up and whacking a tennis ball for hours every day and travelling around the world and staying in public, I think she said, well, I've been there, done that. I now want to do something else. Now, you watch her. She will find some role in Australian life uh, that will be quite me because she's got the stature and the credibility, the legend, mature person. I actually thought that she showed to Australian people there's a time in your life that when you've achieved some goal, you don't keep trying to achieve it, but you move on, uh, which I must say I've done three times in my life, moved on. And I was impressed with her. How did you see it, Jack?
0: I mean... Yeah, it, it's wonderful. And, it like, she is... Um, it The, the Hero of the Week this week, again, it, it's got to be Ash Barty. Um, I'm, I'm disappointed for Lance Franklin, who just kicked his 1,000th goal in the AFL to become the sixth <laughs> man to ever do that last night. And yeah. also Australian Test Opener was Khawaja, who just won Man of the Series in a Test Series in, in his home country of Pakistan. Yeah. Two very worthy sportsmen of the Hero of the Week uh, title this week, who, unfortunately... Um, have to sit back for Ash party So a shout out to them. But um, Ash is wonderful. I mean, she has shown like the value in going out on top. Um, she has gone out when she wants to. Because no doubt there would have been people, whether it would be agents, sponsors, um, etc., saying, no, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. And there would have been pressure to do that. Um, she's only 25, only three years older than me, uh, but I'm currently sitting at Zero Grand Slams. Um, but I hope to, <laughs> I hope to catch her by the time I'm 25. Um, she like she, she said she wants to get married, and she wants to help Indigenous kids get into the game of tennis um, as her first two little sub goals in retirement from pro tennis. And those are two awesome goals um, because you know when being that age, if you've got a partner you love and you're touring all all around the world. You don't get to spend as much time with them as, as you want to, unless you get sick of them, In which case touring world's probably a fun idea. But, you know, she clearly wants to spend more time with her family. She clearly wants to work on these Indigenous tennis clinics domestically. And all power to her for taking the jump of Billy. Um, It's really wonderful.
1: That's true. And, look, I think, you know, when she says the thing about helping Indigenous children, she'll help Indigenous children in all sorts of ways beyond, you know, beyond. Uh, you know, tennis, and I actually think she will play a, a leadership role but a non-political role in having Indigenous people recognised in the Australian Constitution. By, there'll be a referendum at some point. I'm part of a team that's pushing for that. We've finally got to re- recognise in the Australian Constitution that people were here for 65,000 years before the Brits turned up. And there needs to be, and she could be a non-political person who simply says, uh, uh, my people, you know, deserve this recognition. Not, and a lot of Australians wouldn't uh, agree with that. It wouldn't be a, it, it wouldn't be a political uh, uh, thing at all. And look, uh, and just, just as a bit of an aside, I went on Twitter yesterday, I didn't get much of a run, but it too ridiculous. I said, look, Ash Barty won't do it. But if we could talk Ash Barty and running into this as an independent in the see the cook against Morrison, that she'd get 90% of the vote, Uh, you know, and and I I only got a dozen people, but they all thought it was a good idea because everybody knows she's not going to do it. But actually, she'd not only get 90% of the vote, the other 10% would be informal. She'd wipe him out. (laughs) What do you think?
0: Oh, I'd love to see that. love to see Morrison get wiped out in his own seat. Um, That would be wonderful. But um, who's who's your zero of the week at?
1: Well, you know, you you can find zero. I mean, you've got to, you know, it's very hard to go past, uh, uh, you know, Putin as the No Hope of the Week. But really, I was, again, disappointed with NATO. And and you and I have debated this over and over. And and I was very pleased that Zelensky actually, in, in his video link with him, actually tore them apart for how they weren't really stepping up to the plate. You'll note that he, he gave up the no-fly zone. He worked out they're never going to do that. And, and, but he, he, he pointed out how deficient they were and all sorts of other things. And, and I still think uh, they're not, uh, you know, bank So my, my now hope to the weak and NATO, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, in, you know, in that, uh, that regard. Where are they? You get serious with this thing, uh, uh, you know, and when you see the plight of civilians in Ukraine, absolutely gut wrenching. But uh, anyway, uh, so NATO is my crook of the week. Now,
0: who are you going, man? Um, so I've I've gone across the Pacific to America for my zero of the week, and I've um I've gone a very niche one. I've picked the the wife of U.S. Supreme Court Judge Clarence Thomas. Oh yes, it's yes, Jenny Thomas. Now again, the U.S. Supreme Court has nine judges. They're all very partisan and political in the US. We're we're very lucky here to have a fairly nonpartisan high court. The US Supreme Court is basically another arm of government in the political sense. And the wife of Republican appointed Judge Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, it came out this week that she'd been sending text messages to um, elected officials during the 2020 election aftermath, trying to convince them to overturn the election results in favour of Donald Trump. So this is the wife of a sitting Supreme Court judge, the judge on the highest court in the land, trying to interfere in the political process and get the election overturned undemocratically. Um, That's sickening. What's also sickening is Clarence Thomas, her husband, the judge, has so far refused to recuse himself from any Supreme Court proceedings involving her that may involve her, that may come out of this, which
1: is even worse. (laughs) It's the Well, two things, here, two things here, James. First of all, Clarence Thomas himself was a, 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 a very controversial appointment to the court. George, President George H.W. Bush, G.W. Bush's father, appointed him because he wanted to, as all presidents do, stack the court with someone of their, uh, of their political persuasion. And he got in in great controversy. And in fact, he's a very ordinary Now, his wife should have been sensitive to the fact she married her, but you come to the point that a woman's life cannot be dictated by what a husband does. Now, I'm agreeing with you that I think she's quite stupid, but a woman is entitled to her own opinion irrespective of what her husband does. Now, if I think if, if you took a poll of Australian women at the moment as to whether... If their husband is in a responsible position, are they or are they not entitled to their own position? You'd find most of them would say, Well, to hell with my husband, I've got my position. But she is a very high profile woman. And whereas uh, you know, my wife, Helen, could disagree with me totally and it would be lost in the morass in five minutes. But when you're married to a Supreme Court judge, you know it's going to go like hell all around the world. So you've got to have a bit of now somewhere, haven't you? But I still defend her right have a different opinion to a husband. My problem is I think her husband might
0: have the same opinion. <laughs> well, it, it, exactly. Um, and I suppose that the, the big thing here isn't um, the, like just the fact that she's married to him per se, it's that she's leveraging the connections and the text channels and the halls of power, etc., cetera, that um, she and he both share being prominent members of American society because you, you know how it is in America, like, regrettably the wife of every male political appointee is also for some reason a political figure too which is really stupid because like you say it takes away their autonomy and puts them into the political um, cauldron for no reason but um it, every day i consider myself lucky we have a nonpartisan high court and a more stable political system than they do because every week there's one of these stories of something happening in America. It's just the most
1: cooked. Yeah, well, and, uh, and America is in trouble in all sorts of ways. The huge division between right and left, which just goes beyond political, uh, you know, debate, is, is, is just nasty. You know, just to show, just to finish, how we don't have to be nasty. If you read The Guardian today, my friend, uh, and we must finish up with this, I see a half hour's up, but my friend Catherine Murphy, a great journalist who's got 235,000 followers on Twitter compared with my 10,000. But uh, she's got an article about how Eric Abetz is fighting for his political life in Tasmania. He's been the senator there for 25 years, Liberal Party, and they put him number three on the ticket and he's likely to miss out because only two. And he's fighting a lone battle for people to vote for him. He's got signed up for everywhere saying vote one for Eric Abetz. Now, Eric Abetz, He's a very right-wing politician, very right. But he's been a friend of mine for 25 years. I met him when he first got And he and I have met for breakfast many times down the years for political debates. He loves to get together. And he and I would meet for breakfast, and we wouldn't agree on a single thing over breakfast, but we'd have the delightful conversations and when we walk out of the place he put his arm around me and say whoever well, you're the only decent lefty I've met in the whole world and <laughs> off he go. so we were able to have these debates with great humor and he was totally at other end of the thing yet over in America a right-wing Republican the bitterness that goes on is, is horrendous isn't it
0: yeah and I mean like I it, it's sort of it, it, it's hard for me because I I see some of the things these republicans are saying like that they're denying gay people and trans people the very right to exist essentially for some of these people over in the states so they're like it, it's beyond the point where you can have a civil debate with these people because that there are people's lives at stake um you know like i if if i were a, a gay person or a trans person which i'm not but you know we're, we're both allies of the lgbtqi plus community on this show um, I reckon I'd struggle to look someone in the eye if they were of the opinion that, you know, my identity does not exist, is a heathenous, should burn in hellfire um, identity, that sort of thing. So, but it's, yes, it's really bad that there's been that loss of civility. But with the, the stakes of what's going on over there and the debates that are being had, I, I don't think anyone can be civil, really.
1: Well, that, you know that, that that's uh, you know where we uh, it, it, it is a, a distressing thing about the way democracy in America is one of those extraordinary ex, extremes. And uh, mm. and there we go now, James. We better wind up. We're way past thirty minutes now. We'll, we'll meet next week. Now the big issue is that Tuesday night, Josh Reinberg brings down the budget. It's supposed to be the budget that wins the election for the Morrison government. It's going to hand out all sorts of goodies. I happen to know that every conservative in Australia has been telling Josh Frydenberg what to put in that budget. And I feel very sorry for Josh Frydenberg because he we need, need a budget of several thousand trillion to meet all the happy, make all these blokes happy. So I'd be very interesting that budget. I think we'll have a good analysis of the budget, not only from political terms, but if it ever got carried out, what would it do for Australia economically and socially? Yep. I think we might take the budget apart next week. What do you think?
0: Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, Thanks for listening all. Yep. See you all next week. Thanks. Bye.